Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Judges, chapter 2. We're continuing on with a series in the book of Judges that we started. Now, this will be the sixth week that we've been in it. This has been a a sermon series that started back in July at the the 5 o'clock evening service. So, for many of you, this will be... Um, the first time in this sermon series. So uh, in light of that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over a little bit of the introduction that um, we did the first night of the series in July um, and a recap of what we've gone through. Um, Because the book of Judges, we place that amongst the historical books. However, it's much more than just an ancient record. And we need to understand that in order to hear what God has to say for us. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But anyway, the time of Judges, the time we're going back to, this takes place shortly after the death of the great leader of Israel, uh, Joshua. And it is before the time of the first king of Israel, the first human monarch, who is Saul. This period of time, the period of the judges, is about 200 years in length. Runs from about 1250 BC to about uh, 1050 uh, BC. So quite some time ago. It was 12 centuries before the birth of Christ that that these events um, took place. So, as we, as we opened the book of Judges, what we saw is that Joshua had just died. And we think of Joshua, we think of the conquest of Canaan. But as we get into Judges, we see that the conquest is incomplete. The conquest must continue. This period builds, as I said, towards the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. And we see why And we see the demands beginning to form for a human king because the Israelites, the 12 tribes of Israel, were failing to recognize Yahweh as their king. And later they demanded a human king like the pagan nations around them. And we're going to see that. We see this in Judges. We see this canonization, if you will, of the Israelites, how they become like the people that they are to drive out of the land. So what's important to realize and remember as we go through Judges is that Israel is not yet a nation state, so to speak. It is not a country per se. It's a loose confederation of 12 tribes with different interests, with different chieftains leading each tribe. The previous great leaders like Moses and Joshua are dead. They're gone. These men provided a unifying glue for the Israelites, for these 12 tribes to come together under the leadership, ultimately, of Yahweh. There's no such leader that arises during the time of Judges. We find that the unity amongst these tribes is severely hampered in the Promised Land. One of the reasons is there is a geographic separation from each other. They're no longer traveling as a group, camping as a group, with the tabernacle of Yahweh in the center. No, they've been sent out to their tribal 
allotments. They're separated from each other geographically. And since they have failed to drive out all the Canaanites, they're interspersed with these Canaanite cities, these fortified cities that control the commercial routes, that can control the communication routes. So there's a difficulty in connecting with them. And more so, they are in a state of disunity because of the gods of the Canaanites. Yahweh had warned them through Joshua repeatedly that these gods, these pagan entities, would be a snare to them, a trap. And that's what we find happening. And this led to a weakening of covenantal loyalty to Yahweh and to one another. So we're seeing, we're seeing a spiritual and moral decline so serious that it threatened to destroy Israel from within. Internal conflicts arose among the Israelites, and most were concerned only with their own interests. And that's why we find later on in the book this phrase that gets repeated. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this inner decay threatened to destroy the very fabric of Israel and actually constituted a much more serious threat to its survival in the judges' period than any external attack. Now, we can immediately connect this to the church, to what we read in the New Testament letters, the epistles from the apostles. They are not concerned, writing to the church, about external enemies. They're not concerned about the great persecution that seems to always be on the minds of us. That's what we think about, is persecution. Oh, there's someone out there that's going to get us that doesn't like us. Well, that's true, but it's always been true, brothers and sisters. What the apostles were concerned with is what we're going to see here is the internal issues, the false teaching in the church, the departure from the faith that affects us. So going on with a short introduction, who or what were the judges? It's important that we understand who we're talking about. These are not um, judicial uh, officials. They did not hear court cases like a judge today. It comes from a Hebrew, judges comes from this Hebrew word, the root of which means to rule, administer, or exercise leadership. And they, they had two basic uses, um, usages of this word, to judge or lead in internal affairs, affairs within the Israelite uh, people, and to, to, to deliver or lead in external affairs, like in dealing with foreign opponents. So these men did not provide justice to individuals, as we think of, of, of a judge doing. Their role was to provide justice for the tribes of Israel. And how did they do this? They did this by providing protection against foreign oppressors. <clears throat> Usually, that would be the role of a king, of a monarch. But these men were, were not kings. There was no process to becoming a judge. It was not passed from father to son, <clears throat> to son like a king. No, each judge was individually and uniquely raised up 
by the Lord God. And unlike a king, the judges at this time in Israel were not the heads of government because there was no government per se. There was no um, there was no taxation, there was no standing army, there was no governmental bureaucracy. Their authority, the judge's great authority, lay in their ability to call out the armies of Israel. And when a judge successfully rallied these armies of more than one tribe, then it was evidence to the Israelites of Yahweh's calling of that judge, that that judge was successful in delivering them, in bringing their armies together to fight against a foreign oppressor. So these men were military leaders, basically, is what they were. And the, the, the Hebrew term, uh, shafatim, for judge, can be translated as deliverer, which gives us a better sense of their role. And this office of judge, deliverer, originated... Uh, as one to settle minor disputes during the time of Moses in the Exodus. However, by this time in Israel's history, the judicial role had been almost completely uh, gone. It, it was basically gone, except for the prophetess Deborah. She's the only person that adjudicates uh, cases amongst the Israelites as we go through this book. But, but Deborah was not a judge per se because she was not a military leader. She, although she, she judged Israel in their internal conflicts, she had to call on a man, Barak, to be the military leader who was technically the judge at that time. The structure and content of the book itself is important. And it's important because we have two prologues at the beginning that are back-to-back in the book. The first one, which uh, is Judges chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 5, deals with Israel's social fragmentation. And the second prologue picks up at Judges 2, 6, and runs through 3, 6, deals with Israel's religious deterioration. So, we're beginning the second prologue right now in our sermon series. So that's, that's where we are. And the interesting thing about these prologues is, and the reason for them is they provide context to what's going on. In each prologue, we see what we might term, if we were watching a movie, a flashback. There are occurrences that we come across in both of these prologues that are lifted out of the book of Joshua. Now, and why is that? Now, that's the problem. If we read this just as history, then we stumble upon this. It's like, okay, if we really know our Bible, we realize this has already happened. Or, you know, we see it because Judges opens up with the comment after Joshua's death. And then now we're going to see in the excerpt we'll be in tonight, or excuse me, this morning, that Joshua is on the scene. But I thought he was dead. Well, for reading it like a history, it's like something's messed up here. But there's more to this. We place judges in the historical books. We read historical books as recounting facts, events that occurred. And oftentimes we find that not really 
germane, not really applicable to our lives, especially if we didn't care for history much in school. It's like, eh, that happened long ago. Does it, does it matter to me? The Hebrew Bible is constructed differently, although it's the, they're the exact same books and they're in the same order. The Jews considered this book, among some of the other historical books, as part of the former prophets. Now, that's an interesting concept to think of history as prophetical, and that's what the ancient Jewish scribes did, because what they saw in their history pointed towards their future. That's a lesson that we can learn and we can take from. So this is more than just history. And this is why we see these things in the prologues that seem to be a bit out of order. Now, we're going to see as we go through this, um, after the prologues, we'll get into the main body of the book, which is the account of the judges. There are six major judges that we'll read about. And there's six minor judges. And the minor judges, there's hardly any narrative involved in them. We don't know much about them. There's nothing that we're really told other than they were raised up as judges and that they died. Um, But with the six major judges, we see that there is a pattern. The The first judge we'll read about starts in the southernmost tribal allotment of the promised land, and then each judge moves further north, from south to north. And there's a cycle amongst these accounts. There's a pattern that's repeated. And what that is, is that Israel is in apostasy. We're going to talk more about apostasy this morning. Then God brings judgment upon Israel. The people cry out to the Lord God. And the Lord God raises up a deliverer, a judge, who brings deliverance. And the land goes back to rest. Now, if you were in the Genesis class on Wednesday nights, remember what rest, remember Sabbath. It's a, it's a place of shelter. It's a place of safety, right? It's not just, you know, putting our feet up, although that idea is in it, but that Lord provides a safe place for us. And then the accounts end with the death of the judge, the deliverer. So getting to, back to this idea of it being prophetic history, comparing it to um, just our idea of history, a historical book in the Bible, in our view of history. Now, there was a very well-known German philosopher from the 18th century by the name of Hegel. And Hegel said something that is pretty striking. He said about history, we learn from history that we learn nothing from history. Other people have picked us up and changed it a little bit, you know, condemned to repeat history if you don't know it. So, but this is true, and you read philosophers and historians, and they all bemoan this fact. Why is it true? Why do we repeat this stuff? We know what has happened in the past, or we have a a vague idea, and often it's not good. Well, we cannot deliver ourselves from our fallen state. We're in a state of sin. That's why we see this repetitive cycle. That's why in the judges, with each judge, each major judge, we see this 
repetition of apostasy, calling out rescue, and then it starts all over again. So we're naturally governed by the sin, and only Christ can deliver us. That's why we seem to be trapped in these patterns. But once in a state of regeneration through the grace of God, I suggest that our study of the past will help rescue or deliver us from what we all suffer from, which is often called chronocentrism, which is this pattern of thinking that we're the only ones to experience life in the way we are. That things are so, as example, things are so bad right now, nobody has ever had it this bad. And I'm sure each of you, like I have, have talked to people who, who say that. And you think, if you know anything about history, you could think of, well, you know, I know of, uh, um, you know, uh, believers, reformers being, you know, drug out of their churches and out of their pulpits and burned at the stake. We don't have that happening. So, yeah, maybe it's not quite that bad. But for most, of, most people, especially the unregenerate, what happens in the past, what occurred in the past does not matter and does not impact us today. But if you believe in a God who works in human time, how could we have such a belief? That's what I want you to realize and, and, to, and to work against and, and bring this to the forefront of your thinking as we go through Judges, because in Judges, we're going to see themes that are timeless, that leadership is vital, and that partial obedience is really disobedience. And God graciously calls his people to a covenant relationship, but he tolerates no rivals, none whatsoever. He is graceful, excuse me, gracious and merciful even when his people sin. And God is the one who ultimately saves, not human leaders. So the first prologue that we've already been through on Sunday night, I want to just recap that. It opens with the phrase, after the death of Joshua. And it recounts some serious political failure on Israel's part. Israel's God-given mission had been to, and is, as we go on, is to drive out the Canaanites from the promised land. They were commanded to carry this on in driving out the commandments as Judges opens up. This is an incomplete task. There was some success that we see in the first prologue, but many failures, mainly failures. And these failures were all connected to disobedience of God. And in the final scene of the first prologue, we see the angel of the Lord, who is God the Son before his incarnation as Jesus. He confronts the Israelites over their disobedience. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 2, But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? And then he pronounces judgment on them for their disobedience in verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And in response, in verses 4 and 5, all the people of Israel lifted up their voices and wept. They called the name of that place Bokim, place of weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Okay, now you're all caught up. Everybody is on the same page, and we can begin with our new material. So, with your Bibles, look at Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Follow along as I read this. 
When Joshua dismissed the people, see, there's our pro a problem right there. We got Joshua on scene, even though we'd just been told last chapter he was dead. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Hariz, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So here, the beginning of the second prologue, we approach it, if we approach it as chronological history, we immediately run into some huge problems that we saw, as I pointed out, starting with this idea that Joshua is present, even though we'd been previously informed that he was dead. And the wording here, the syntax of what's going on in verse 6, when it's compared to verse 5, suggests that Joshua's death follows verse 5, after the assembly of Israel at Bochim. But this also creates serious chronological problems. Because in the military campaigns of chapter 1 that we went through, those campaigns followed the death of Joshua, according to Judges 1.1. And the Bochim episode happened in the wake of and in response to Israel's military failures. So how can Joshua dismiss the people and send them to their inherited land allotments after this, after the encounter with the angel of Yahweh? Well, what we find is Judges 2, verses 6 through 9, repeats almost verbatim a passage out of Joshua. So keep your eyes on Joshua 2, 6 through 9, and I'm going to read to you Joshua 24, 28 through 30. And I want you to see the connection here. This is what Joshua 24, 28 through 30 says. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance of Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Now, if we don't figure out and understand why it's being repeated, then we could get trapped into the mistake of finding a contradiction or evidence that the, um, the, uh, the human authors uh, got stuff mixed up or there was editing issues later. But that's, that's not what's going on. And let me explain this to you. So this event in Joshua um, 24 that I just read, recounted in Judges 2, follows the covenant renewal ceremony at Sechem, at the very end of Joshua's life. And just as the angel of the Lord in Judges 2, verses 1 through 5, had reminded the Israelites of Yahweh's past covenantal grace, how God had blessed them, and how they had failed to keep the covenant with God, so too this narrative following that in Judges 2, 6 through 10, where Joshua appears, offers a look back 
at Israel's past commitments, in light of which the pattern of apostasy and infidelity found in Judges should be viewed. It's a flashback. It's a comparison. It's a contrasting. It's like, this is what once was. Now look at what is. And comparing the two, the reader, the hearer, should find a severe lacking on the part of Israel. And this is just a continuation of a practice in the narrative that we observed in chapter 1. The triumphs of the past at the time of Israel are repeated. They're interspersed in the failures of Judges present. This is how the, the prologues are used in the book of Judges. And with this idea in mind, we move on. Judges chapter 2, verse 7. Verse 7 is quite telling. Follow along here. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. That these people had served the Lord tells us some important things. It tells us they were obedient to God and that they fulfilled their covenant obligations to the Lord God and they were a faithful people to the Lord. Verse 7 also says, the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. This refers to bringing the people to the promised land. And these people referred to here in this verse are the only ones of the generation who went through the entire Exodus event. From the ten plagues, the passing over of the destroying angel, the crossing of the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, and the subsequent 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before finally entering the promised land, the only ones of that generation who entered the promised land were Joshua and Caleb. And the first generation of the Exodus, except for these two men, Joshua and Caleb, were all condemned to die in the wilderness by the Lord. We read this in the book of Numbers. And the second generation, those born during Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, were allowed to enter the promised land. We read this also in Numbers 14.31. And the Lord says something interesting here. He says, but your little ones who you said would become a prey, prey like, you know, a victim of something. So all the people thought their kids would just never make it. They were all going to die. God says, I will bring them in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. This is the second generation that, the God, that God's talking about. It's the generation of the conquest that entered the promised land. In verse 10, the first part of verse 10 in Judges where we're at, explains that all of this second generation died before the time of the Judges. It says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. It means they died. So the generation under Moses' leadership and the generation under Joshua's leadership were all dead, all of them. In the second part of verse 10, we're told there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now think about this. <clears throat> I suggest it's difficult to the point of impossibility, I would go so far as to say, to imagine that these people who had entered the promised land under Joshua, who had seen these things, who, were, who, 
whose parents were rescued out of, out of Egypt and had gone through the wilderness time, it's, it's difficult to imagine that they did not tell their children any of this, that they just closed their mouths and didn't speak of it. So what is this passage, what is this verse telling us? Because in our way of thinking, that's what it sounds like, right? It's like, it's like your parents didn't tell you one thing about their experiences in life, nor did they tell you anything about their parents' experiences in life, even though there were some pretty miraculous things that they both went through. I don't think that's what it's saying. What we're being told is that they lacked yada. They lacked a knowing relationship with the Lord God. That's the biblical idea of knowing. We've talked about this before, and I'm sure um, Pastor Steve has has talked about it many times, that we we have to make sure we have a firm grasp on this idea of knowing. It means experiencing something in a relational sense. It does not mean they did not have intellectual knowledge of what had transpired before. What it means is it didn't mean anything to them. It was dead history. It was stuff that happened long ago that didn't apply to them. I mean, think of your kids. No matter how old you are or how old your kids are, you have experienced or you will experience a point where your child or children think that stuff that happened in what is the recent past to you is ancient history. And they can't believe how long ago mom and dad did that stuff. This brings us to my first point. What we're seeing here is a group of people, a people group. We're talking about Israel. We're talking about the 12 tribes. We're not just talking about a few people. They can go from faithfulness to God to complete apostasy in just three generations. Three generations. We're talking about the span of time between a grandparent and a grandchild. That applies to me and to many of you who are grandparents. That's how short a time period it is. And when it's not just an individual or a a small group of individuals falling away from the faith. No, it's an entire generation. It's all of them, according to the text. So every single grandchild of the Israelites who the Lord rescued out of Egypt did not know the Lord or the work they had done for Israel because it was this dim historical fact without meaning or relevance to their lives. Does that sound familiar? That's what we're talking about with our view of history, with the secular view of history. It doesn't apply to us. We're different. We're smarter. We're better. Um, We're not going to get trapped in the same things. That's old-fashioned. However you want to describe it, that's that's a very common way of thinking. Well, this is what is going on with the third generation of the Israelites that were rescued out of Egypt. It was already dead ancient history to them. It was devoid of covenantal meaning. God wasn't connected to it. What the text is telling us is that every single man and woman in Israel 
in every single tribe of the 12 tribes had apostatize. What is this verb? What does this mean? What does it mean to apostatize? Well, apostasy is an English transliteration of a Greek word. And this Greek word, apostasia, has military and political connotations to it. It refers to rebellion against a king, to usurp him, remove him from the throne. It refers to rebellion against what the king has commanded you to do or not do. It refers to defection or treason against the king during armed conflict. Today, we often associate it with the idea of abandoning belief in God. However, realize that this concept of abandoning belief in God, being an atheist, if you will, is completely foreign to the Bible. It's completely foreign to the Old Testament and the New Testament. The existence of Israel's gods and of the lesser gods of the nation is not of the nations is not in question in the Bible. It's not. There's no argument as to whether God exists or not. It's a plain fact that God does exist. Rather, what is stressed in both of our testaments is exclusive devotion to the Lord God. And to depart from exclusive devotion to God is what the Bible is referring to as apostasy. In the Old Testament, it tests to the problem of Israel following after the gods of the nations. Frequently, we see it comes about when they intermarry with the pagans. And then the Israelites quickly adopt the religious practices of the pagans. And we're told in Judges, or we read in Judges, and the angel of the Lord tells Israel that these pagan gods will be a snare, will be a trap to them. Now, in the, in the ancient world, this idea of snaring and trapping, we've kind of lost that idea. It means capturing something to kill it. It's not like, you know, uh, if you're old enough, Mutual of, of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, where an animal is trapped and taken to a place where it can be studied or healed or whatever, and it's a nice, pleasant experience. Everyone, you know, enjoys it, and we feel good at the end. No, this is the idea of killing something, that these gods with a little g are going to grab hold of you in a way you're not going to see coming, and they are going to kill you. And this is judgment from the Lord God. It's not that these lesser gods of the nations have the power to do it, that they are in, they are in rebellion against, against the Lord God, but they are not autonomous. They do not have power of their own. This is what the Lord God has allowed them or directed them to do. And as much as they hate God, they must do exactly what God commands them to do. It's interesting that the Hebrew terms we find for this Greek term apostasy, that we translate as apostasy or treachery or rebellion, are also used for moral corruption. This points to how the Old Testament view of apostasy, which obviously contributes to the New Testament view, 
and thus should also form our view, is directly related to the impact of ungodly culture. And this is what we're going to see with the tribes of Israel. And it is a lesson to us. So how did this happen? Well, it could be that the second generation assumed that their children's generation would just follow along and somehow become faithful covenant people to Yahweh. Maybe they didn't give it much thought. I mean, from a human perspective, we can see that, can't we? Maybe we've done something similar ourselves at times with different things, or we know people who have. You just think, well, they're just going to do what I do because this is the way we've always done it. And, you know, they want to be like mom and dad, so I'm not going to think much about it. No, there'd been a a seismic shift that went on. Seismic shift in the Israelite pattern of life that accounts for this. No longer were the Israelites living together in a camp with the tabernacle of Yahweh at the center. That cohesiveness was gone. They were spread out through Canaan, as I said, in their allotted tribal territories. And they were further apart from their organized worship activities, and they were closer to the Canaanite worship activities. Whatever the Canaanites were doing in worshiping their lesser gods was something that was more in their experience than the centralized worship of Yahweh, which we don't even read about at this time. The Israelites of this second generation failed to take into account something that was a central principle to the purity laws which Yahweh had instructed them to observe. You know, those those things that go, those laws that go on and on in Leviticus that are so difficult to read and like, what what applicability is that to my life? I, you know, I'm not, I'm just, I'm skipping through this. There's a lesson that Israel failed to learn in this. And that is this, and it's something that we should realize. When, when something that is pure, and in Israel's case, things are made ritually pure through the ordinance, through the sacrifices that the Lord God has given them. When these things that are ritually pure come in contact with what is unpu- impure or unclean ritually, then the pure thing becomes contaminated. The pure thing becomes impure. The impure thing is not cleansed by the pure thing. It doesn't work that way. Contact with the pure thing, all it does is contaminate the pure thing. It doesn't doesn't change anything about what's unclean. The holy is contaminated by the profane. The sacred is contaminated by the common. The impure or profane must be cleansed first. So the Israelites are surrounded by impurity and uncleanliness. If if they thought back on the Levitical laws, they'd think, well, this is going to impact everything we do if 
we come into close contact with it unless that is made pure. Well, these are not covenantal people out there, so there's no mechanism for that at this time. Unlike us, who have the gospel and the Holy Spirit that goes forth. And what we've seen so far, and what we're going to continue to see, is the Israelites were tolerant of the Canaanite practices and customs. And this tolerance was evident in their failure to drive out the people from the land as God had commanded. And this tolerance led to the, led to the ensnarement by the gods of the Canaanites, as we talked about. Now here's something that we must realize, and I think we do, even if we don't like to admit it. Forbidden practices are naturally attractive to us in our fallen nature. And the Canaanite religion offered a lot of stuff. Now think of these Israelites. They're coming into the land after 40 years in the wilderness. How did they survive? What type of, what type of work, if you will, were they engaged in during that time? Well, they were shepherds. They led a pastoral life, a nomadic life, which you must do, especially in a land like the Near East, where there's not lush, lush vegetation everywhere, your animals must be moved to different pastures continually. They come into the land of Canaan, the land that's been promised to them, the land of milk and honey. And the Canaanites are established there. The Canaanites have a strong agricultural way of living. They know how to raise crops off the land. They're successful in doing this. So the Israelites come in. They don't know how they're going to live. They see the Canaanites living well. How do those guys do that? Maybe we can learn something from them. Well, come to find out that the Canaanite religious practices are connected to growing things in the ground. There's fertility practices that they practice. And forgive me, but I must say it, these Fertility practices involved illicit sexual acts that the people of God are forbidden to engage in. So what are the Israelites seeing in the Canaanites? They see that they have power. They see that they have wealth. They see that they know how to make the land fertile. And it's connected two things that they're not supposed to do. This is a powerful and deadly lure that the Israelites faced. And when you think about it, how much different is the culture in the world to us? The lure of that, the lure of power, the lure of riches, the lure of forbidden relationships. The world makes it look so attractive. And we can imagine that the Canaanites made it look oh so attractive also. So this idea of apostasy, it starts with disobedience. It's wrapped up in disobedience and it ends in disobedience. And we hide apostasy under a veneer of feelings and emotions. When we do not feel that feeling we desire to feel, 
when we do what God commands us to do, that is excuse enough for us to obey God. I want to feel a certain way, but I don't feel that way when I do what God tells me to do, so I'm not going to do what God tells me to do because I'm not getting that satisfaction. That's one of the dangers. The other is maybe we feel that feeling that we desire to feel when we do what God commands us not to do, when we're in rebellion, when we're disobedient. We get what we're looking for. We get that feeling. And that also is excuse enough for us to disobey God. And does not the world tell us that it is worth it? If it makes us feel better, whatever it is, yeah, go for it. Follow your heart. You've got to be true to yourself. Everybody's got to follow his or her own path. Whatever. You know, if you're hearing that now, just, just think. Those of us that are the grandparents here in the assembly, we're hearing that when we were young also. The lies of Satan do not change. This is what the Israelites were hearing. Our unregenerated feelings and emotions desire to usurp God from his throne and take his place to rule over us. We want to put our feelings and emotions on the throne that belongs solely to God. And these feelings and emotions, brothers and sisters, are petty tyrants who will make you miserable and who by their very nature must be at war with every other person's emotions and desires. Everyone who crosses your path. It's nothing but conflict. There is no unity. One against another. So what is the result of not knowing the Lord or the work that the Lord has done? If we go on in verses 11 through 13, we see the result. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. This passage shows that the fundamental tension and temptation facing Israel were the gods of the Canaanites. Three generations ago, the Israelites had left a land of many gods, Egypt. They were taken out of that land of bondage by the Lord God and brought into the wilderness where he revealed himself to them as the one true God and gave them the law at Mount Sinai that they were to have no other gods except him. Now, they're back in a land of many gods. Again, that being the Baals, the land of Canaan. Now, Baal is a Semitic noun meaning lord or master. And there's often a specifying term attached to it that tells us who or what this lesser god is lord or master over. There are many different Baals worshipped in different places. And the, this, the Ashtaroths, this is a plural term also, were the female consorts to the Baals. 
You see how the pagans patterned the lesser gods after what they see in human society, because every king must have a queen, right? Otherwise, you do not have offspring. You do not have heirs. And they thought that this occurred in the spiritual realm also. And they did, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What was the evil that they did? So we're told in a parallel that has a chiastic um, structure to it. It means that it repeats some ideas and then, it, then the same ideas are presented, but they're reversed in order. And this is an emphasis. This is a Hebrew literary way of emphasizing something. We are told that they served the Baals and they abandoned the Lord. Then this is repeated in reverse order. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. This emphasis is telling us that these two things go hand in hand, abandoning the Lord and serving these other gods. This brings us to the second point. What is evil can only be defined by the one true God. Because this God and only this God is creator. The one who made all things determines all things. Accordingly, what is good can only be defined by this God. In fact, we're told this in the Gospels, aren't we? When Jesus Christ said, only God is good. So this points to the utter uniqueness of our God and to the truth of the fallen condition of all things apart from God in this present world. So what are the consequences of apostasy, of rebellion, when we turn against the Lord and embrace the Baals and the Astaroths? Even today, we don't have the same name. We don't call them this. People don't call them this. But they're out there. They're many different things, just like the Baal was many different things. Well, the consequences are in verses 14 through 15. Follow along here. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress." This brings us to the last point in this sermon. Being given over to our rebellious desires is the worst earthly judgment that can be pronounced upon us by God. When Israel abandoned the Lord and served other gods, which the Bible describes as lusting after, whoring after, committing adultery with, God basically said, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you will get. And he gave them over. God can do this because he's Lord, even of those who deny him. He alone has this power to give over. The consequences Israel suffered should give us pause today. The text tells us the Israelites were plundered, they were defeated. And their enemies surrounded them. And the Lord had warned them of these consequences. God always provides a warning before judgment. 
This is to allow for repentance and turning away from our sin and rebellion before he enacts judgment upon those who are rebellious. And God swears in this passage that these consequences that he warns of will occur. God is serious. He wants us to take, and we need to take, his word seriously. There are consequences to disobedience, to rebellion, unless there is repentance and turning from that, coupled with a renewed obedience. God has given us the Holy Spirit that allows us to do these things. That's what's so magnificent about our God and his salvation. Well, Israel realized the consequences of disobedience and rebellion. And we're told they were in terrible distress. It's not the end of them. And that's amazing when you think that they no longer knew anything of God or what he had done. And there wasn't even a faithful remnant left, according to the text. But God does not abandon them. God works in such a way that he brings those he loves back to him. And that's what we're going to see as we go through Judges, how God works in the face of human rebellion, which is continual. Join me in a closing prayer. Heavenly Father, write upon our hearts the message that you will have us take from your word, Lord. How does this apply to us, Lord? It's an important message. We are attacked continually by the world, the flesh, and the devil, as the, as the old saying goes, Lord, and it's so true. Help us with this, Lord. Open our minds, open our hearts. Help us to engage in those daily and continual practices that keep us close to you, Father, that we may appreciate you, that we may love you, that we may share your love with others. Father, I ask for a blessing upon all the brothers and sisters here and upon those who are watching via live stream, those who may watch later on Sermon Audio, Father, that this may be profitable. Your word is always profitable to, to us, Father. And we give thanks for this day. May we all continue as we go our separate ways in praise and worship as the day draws to a close. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.